Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really a pleasure to have you. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. I just wanted to hear a little bit more about your start on the flute um, and the beginning of your career. Uh, you've played flute from a really young age, but you never really had a lot of support from your family. Uh, you didn't really uh, have a lot of representation of black musicians in classical music to make you see it as a viable career. Yet you made it your career. You found the courage to kind of forge your own path. Um, you started as pre-med and math in school and then went into music. So can you talk about a little bit, you know, your start at that exact moment, that exact day when you said, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to go for this. Sure. Yeah. So I, I wasn't the type of person who, you know, at the age of 10, I want to be a concert flutist when I grow up. That really wasn't me. I, I started playing when I was eight and just enjoyed it. And I always thought of it as something to do like as a hobby. And my parents were, you know, they were supportive, but they weren't necessarily thinking that music would be a viable option for me. They just didn't think that music would be something that I or anyone necessarily should make a career out of. So it wasn't like they didn't support me. They just sort of didn't see it as a possibility. So I didn't really have that kind of um, family structure, you know, basically um, growing up, it was sort of about, you know, I want you to have a successful job, you know, and like a successful job means like making a certain amount of money and all those kinds of things. And I had lots of pressure to try to get into the best school, but that's pretty normal, I think, for a lot of kids, I suppose. Yeah. So when I played it, you know, I played flute in school, I played it in band, I played it in orchestra and I enjoyed it, but I wasn't really seeing myself as a musician professionally at all. So when I went to school, I was literally just using music as like an extracurricular activity to kind of keep me sane. And um, so there was like a transition point. So I was a math major. I really loved math. But then when I got to college, I was like, wait, this math is a little bit harder than what I remember in high school. And so I was like, well, maybe I don't need to be a math major, but I was always going to be a pre-med major. But as I was just going through those classes, I just it's a lot, it takes so much discipline to become a doctor as it does become a musician. But when I was studying, um, in my second year, when I was studying, I got so frustrated because I could not see myself. This was like a career that I think my mom really wanted me to have, but I was not necessarily thinking that this is something I wanted to do. And so it was at that moment studying for a final in organic chemistry where I just like just put my book down and I just said, I can't do this anymore. Like I need to study something that I really want to study as opposed to something that is good for me. Yeah. So so like it was like, a, I remember it was like a specific moment. It was studying for my final in organic chemistry in my <laughs> second my sophomore year. So that was like the moment where I just had to just shift gears. And I said to myself, the one thing I really love to do is play music. And, you know, why not try? And as long as I have a plan B, why not go for it? So that was sort of the moment where I said, okay, all right it's much easier to try to do music now and then go back and do something academic later than vice versa. So that was the point where I just sort of shifted my practicing. I just kind of started practicing a lot more seriously up until then it was just for fun. I would just play, you know, 
pieces out of the French book with my teacher, but I wasn't necessarily so disciplined. I didn't practice my scales all that much. I didn't do lots of fundamentals. I just played pieces because it was fun. So, you know, at that point I had to be like, okay, now I have to really practice my scales and do all of these (laughs) fundamentals and do all these things I should have been doing and I wasn't doing. And so I had to shift all of that. But um, so that was like a big transition for me, but I was like really motivated. So it worked out. So I was kind of get, you know, get myself to where I needed to be at least while I finished school. So anyway, that's sort of how things shifted for me. And then after college, you took a break before uh, grad school to kind of play catch up, I guess, in in your eyes. Um, But I kind of, I, I love that idea because I think maybe more people could do that, take that time to really get to know your playing, time away from a teacher for a little bit, because it's a very big shift to go from being in school and studying for years to finding your own voice. Um, So how was that year for you in between college and grad school? Did you discover anything about yourself and your playing that was kind of important to you? Well, I mean, it was, you know, I think, and this is, I think, very common. I think a lot of, a lot of students, you know, maybe go back home after undergrad and kind of take stock or, you know, take a year or two off. I think I'm seeing more and more people do that. And I definitely advocate for it if that's what's, if that's what you want to do. And going to school back to back to back is a lot. It's a lot of work for every, anyone. And so, yeah, there, my reasons for, for taking a year off definitely was because I was still playing catch up. I was still like practicing my scales, like I was supposed to be doing all the time and just getting, getting things where I needed it to be. But as I was, you know, I moved back home, I had to have a job. And so I had a full-time job. And what I realized was, you know, going into this year, juggling a full-time job, which is actually like a service job on top of trying to practice is really, really difficult. And so what I discovered for myself was that I used to rely on my teacher for accountability. You know, my teacher would give us assignments, you know, we'd have to have our etudes ready, we'd have, you know, we have to learn a certain piece in time for the recital and all of these things, all of these goals my teacher had for me. But without a teacher, I had to just do it on my own. And so, of course, it was a lot easier just to, you know, go through the day, the course of my day at my job, and then I get home and I'm really exhausted and tired, and then to have to try to find the time and the motivation to practice after that it was always much easier just to not do that at all and realizing that I could just not practice and no one would like no one would say anything and like I'm never going to get better I'm never going to get to the place I need to be to get into any kind of school so I realized okay it really does need to come from me and so it made me realize that it is something I really wanted and so I was able to find a way to you know, practice in the morning before I left for work or actually like take a nap after I got home and then practice late into the evening. And so I was able to make it work because, you know, I realized that, you know, no one was going to push me like I was going to push me. And so not being in school, it kind of gives you that realization that, okay, if you really want this, you're the one that has to like make it happen, not your teacher, not the institution, you're the one that needs to make it happen. So that's what I really kind of learned from myself. Yeah. Yeah. And then what was your time at Yale like with Ransom Wilson? Um, I read that you you applied to a lot of schools, you got rejected from a lot of schools, and you just got into Yale and you 
kind of mm -hmm. took a leap and, and went to study with him. I mean, is there any little part of you that has any sort of resentment towards those other institutions anymore? Like, you really missed out on me. <laughs> no, I mean, there are so many amazing flutists out yeah. there. And so, yeah. you know, I'm going through the process right now of, you know, we just had our auditions, audition season is right now. And so there's so many great flutists and, you know, there's so many good students and, and, you know, it's, I, you know, it was the right fit. It ended up being the exact right place for me at the time. Yeah. And I, Oh, ransom like a huge debt of gratitude for accepting me. I know he took a leap of faith for accepting me and I'm just forever grateful and we're still in touch and, you know, and I really appreciate his mentorship and, you know, I think some of the things that he might've seen in me, like, you know, I was not my, you know, I was not a finished product. Like I think his other students were, but I think he might've just seen some potential. And so I, it, the fact that he accepted me it that's that whole experience it also informs me now that i'm in the position that i am to sure. kind of look for the same you know look for the people with potential sometimes having a finished product is not always you know the only answer when you're looking for students so that's been really interesting for me to kind of you know draw back on my experience now that i am a teacher yeah do you find yourself um, hesitant to take those risks on new applicants? You know, it depends, you know, I mean, certain, at certain points, you know, um, sometimes if you can just, it's really good to talk to the students, to talk to the applicants and kind of get a sense of, you know, do they have that like inner drive? Like, you know, sometimes people are aware that they sort of were behind and need to catch up and all of those things. And you can tell, I think by talking with them, if this is something that, they can, you know, that they can like work on on their own and work on with you. I mean, you can definitely, I feel like you can, t I can tell a little bit that there are people who definitely have that potential. Like when you have that certain sort of musical intent in your playing, but some of the details haven't been all figured out, like that's like so much easier to work with than someone who's got all the details worked out, but not really having much of a, vocabulary musically so sure. yeah uh, I wanted to I guess talk about potential a little bit more um, and kind of circle back to when you were starting off and uh, you didn't see many black musicians performing classical music and the lack of exposure made you doubt your own potential um, how has that shaped your mission as a performer and as an educator you know I mean you know going to you know I grew up in a very you know, I'm actually, I'm biracial. And so, you know, I grew up in a mixed race household in a city that's very, very diverse. You know, like I've just always had a lot of diversity in my life growing up, but then going to the schools I did, I did not see that very much. So I went to Stanford for my undergrad and then Yale. So it was like, they did not see much diversity at all. And so it was really, um, as I left Yale, it was it became sort of more and more important to me to at least like try to like i'm i don't want to be the only one anymore you know and so for a long long time i felt like i was the only one you know and i really am appreciative now that i'm seeing more and more people um you know playing doing lots of really exciting projects and getting more attention and that's just so so important and you know i've tried to you know, I was, 
I was a part of the NFA um, at the time it was called the cultural outreach committee that's now the diversity and inclusion committee and so I was a part of that committee and we would program concerts by you know black and Latinx composers and you know all of that that was like for years we did those concerts and we would always present pieces and not a lot of people knew about and you know i think now finally people are more aware of these composers and programming programming them on their own i mean it did take you know a slew of racial violence and during a pandemic for some of that to happen but you know the work had been happening by a lot of people before then so you know i think it's really important for us to continue you know promoting this music and giving opportunities to people as much as possible yeah and um, you've also I watched I think a video of you talking about an experience that you had when you were uh, you've graduated from Yale you were living in the city trying you know trying to make it um, at the beginning of your career and you worked at Starbucks like a lot of other people do to to pay bills um, right. and that people that you looked up to that were kind of classical heroes to you of course don't know who you are and they are rude um, so how is that have you always kind of kept that story with you and then now that you, oh, yeah. you know, quote unquote made it um do you understand the importance of kindness to everyone all the time yeah i mean it just yeah i mean i'll never forget that experience working you know and you know just to like set the scene it's like my my jobs i worked at starbucks i lived in manhattan so i worked at starbucks and you know we're in a very sort of well-to-do neighborhood selling coffee to people you know and everyone who's working at starbucks everyone almost everyone that i worked with was a person of color that were working at starbucks and we were serving coffee to you know upper middle class white people and so this was the dynamic and so you know and it's as i come as i'm coming into this job you know i am who i am I'm coming from this sort of, I've had eight years, I have like six years of, you know, Ivy League, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I come, and I come, right, Ivy League stuff. I come to Starbucks, you know, like I am who I am. And I'm like immersed in this group of amazing coworkers, you know, and it's like I find myself again. And so it's really interesting how when I was in school, I was so much on this sort of classical music, classical music trained that I kind of forgot who I was. And then when I was in Starbucks with everyone else who looked like me, I was able to really relax in a way that I hadn't before. So and I wasn't really answering your question, but it just is something that I remember from that time is, you know, it was, I felt very welcomed there that I never really felt in school, by yeah. the way. So we are like gathered together sort of doing our job, having to wake up at like four in the morning, taking the subway to the fancy neighborhoods and serving coffee to people who, you know, who, who couldn't be bothered with us. You know, we were just workers. We were just service people to them. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, a lot of people were rude to us. Like a lot of people were rude to all of us. And so it's hard to not develop a hard edge because of it. And yes, it was particularly disturbing to see people that I knew who they were be rude, you know? Of course, yeah. them not knowing, you know, I'm just like some 
you know, some punk kid, whatever in their eyes, I'm just some punk kid, but I knew who they were. And it just was really, it was really, yeah, I'll never forget that experience. And, you know, it just kind of goes to show is like, you know, sometimes people's true colors really come out when you don't, when you don't think anyone's watching, you know, and, and just sort of being, being kind in all situations. Like you never know who, who, who's giving you your coffee at Starbucks. You never know like what they've been going through. Yeah. You know, could have had a really hard day and, you know, and, and because they're not quite as fast making your latte, you know, it doesn't deserve to be, you know, chided at. It's just, you know, anyway, it's just, um, yeah. I, I recommend having this kind of job for a lot of people, for everyone, just to kind of yes. get a sense of, you know, just humanity. Yeah. To get a survey of how people I've worked in, in, in restaurants and in service before. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's, you, you do see people's true colors and, um, amazing. and it is amazing and it's, it can be disheartening and you realize the importance of kindness to everyone and it makes you be more appreciative of everybody and, and know that yes, everyone's going through something and you don't know what other people are doing in their lives. And uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm to switch gears a little bit to college and university jobs um, and talk about you kind of scoring your first job at UNLV. And what was that process like kind of getting your materials together, you know, going for that first big, huge teaching job? And were you shocked that you got it? Um, were you going in there confident like you had got it 100% you knew it was yours <laughs> yeah the answer is no um so, yeah I uh so I can't remember the exact year but um so I graduated Yale worked at Starbucks so this is while I'm working at Starbucks I start playing and I start doing some gigs in town while working and then I got a small teaching job. It's not a small teaching job, but an adjunct job in Pennsylvania. So I was commuting to Pennsylvania once a week, kind of getting, getting my chops, like sort of like just honing my teaching chops. So I was teaching college students. They weren't music made, they weren't performance majors, but they were some really amazing students that I worked with. And so I kind of got a lot of experience teaching um, college age students and teaching some advanced repertoire. And for the first few years I was in New York, I, you know, was very happy and content with what I was doing, just, you know, bouncing back and forth between lots of different things. But then, you know, I decided to try to get, you know, that steady paycheck and try to get that salary job. And so um, the year that the UNLV job was open, there was actually a, there was actually a slew of openings that year. It was actually a pretty, pretty interesting year, um, which I, you know, not many years has been where there's been a lot of tenure track job openings, but I think there was like four or five good positions open all in the same year. And so, you know, I just applied at all of them just to sort of, just to see. And um, so, you know, I got sort of the call back for the phone interviews. We had a phone interview for UNLV and at that point I had already done a a couple of phone interviews. And so I had sort of gotten experience at that. But with every sort of stage of the application, I sort of looked to my friends who had gotten tenure track jobs at other places for guidance. So I know for each round I talked to, I talked to, to friends who play, who are flutists, but I also talked to other musicians too. 
who had tenure track jobs, they kind of, I had mock phone interviews with people and I had people look over my cover letters for the first round of the process. But so, you know, when I went into the actual um, interview, the on-campus interview, the only time I was actually right at that time, I was touring with my quintet and it was, I literally had like two days available and they're like, okay, we could do it on those two days. And so the way it worked, I had, I played a concert and I remember this, <laughs> I played a concert in New York at like 4 p.m. And then I took an eight o'clock flight from New York to Las Vegas. I arrived at Vegas at 1 a.m. and then got picked up at 7 a.m. for my interview the next day. And I had the interview, which includes, you know, you have to play a recital, give a masterclass, yeah. meet chair, all this. So that whole process happened that day. And then that night I had to take a red eye flight back to, I think, Pennsylvania, because I had a concert that next day. And so it was like sandwiched in this impossible, like trip of concerts. So in a way I was very relaxed because I was so tired. <laughs> like I was just trying to stay awake. And so yeah. In a way, I think that was in my favor because I really wasn't as nervous as I probably would have been if it was like I was looking forward to this for like weeks and I had everything, my whole anticipation build up. Yeah. Geared toward this. I was just like just on fumes, just trying yeah. to like, you know, get everything going. And so it, I think it made me more relaxed. And so I think, I think not that I suggest. I was going to say it results in therapy for other people. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like, but the, the idea, my the idea that it wasn't that I was like, that I was more relaxed because, you know, I had other things going on. Yeah. It helped me. And so, you know, for, for people who are applying for jobs, you know, like this is just one little moment in your life. And, you know, if, if you, the more you can kind of just take stock of this is just one little thing and there's all these other things like if you put all of your energy into it sometimes it can you know be a little bit stressful and yeah. so for me it worked in my favor to just be more relaxed so and it went well for you uh, while you were there in 2017 they honored you with teacher of the year award which must must have been a very special moment for you um and i guess i'm kind of wondering i mean that's a, a big accolade but what drives teachers is usually just the everyday success of their students, the small wins and the big wins too. So um, what does that mean for you in teaching? When do you feel like you've really sent someone on a good path, um, whether it be in music or not? Yeah, it's every, well, every student is different and every situation is different. And, you know, it's not necessarily that you have a student win a job Right. or a student get into like the best music school like that is success you know what student success is you know sort of making a difference in any way and it can be through music but it also can be through other things too it can be through other professions and so kind of the idea of a student especially at the undergraduate level you know you're not necessarily training them to become a flutist you're kind of training them to sort of think critically you're training them to you know, develop discipline to, you know, sort of kind of carve their own path, come up with their own ideas, you know, come up with their own interpretations, their own ideas, having them learn how to become teachers on their own. So I think all of those things, you know, sort of signify success, you know, not just, you know, did I land a job or like, did someone win a competition or anything like that? I don't think that's, 
necessarily for what student success is. Sure. Um, and you landed the University of Miami gig too, and you had some big shoes to fill there. Uh, what was it like uh, coming to Miami and kind of molding that studio into your vision? Yeah. I, mean, I haven't been here very long. And yeah. like over half the time I've been in this job, we've been in a pandemic. So, <laughs> so I started the job in the fall of 2019. So I got less of a less than a year into the job before everything kind of shut down. So um, you know, it's I'm sort of dealing with it like I think like everyone's dealing with, you know, trying to have trying to do a job during a pandemic and yeah. Um, no, but this the school is amazing, you know, and yes, the, the teacher before Trudy Kane is, you know, amazing, amazing, legendary figure. I and mean, I remember I took a lesson with her. I was preparing for like, the Met audition, like oh, or something like a million years ago. And so I remember going to her Manhattan apartment for a lesson a long time ago. And, you know, and, and, you know, and then when she first started at this job, um, one of my students, one of my master's students ended up studying with her for the, for the DMA. And so I had sent her students before. So, you know, it was definitely, definitely a huge figure to look up to and um, huge shoes to fill, you know, but I think, you know, as with all of these kinds of jobs, you know, I mean, I can't fill anybody's shoes. I can just right. have my own shoes and my own shoes are pretty different, you know, as like, I don't have it. I never worked the Met. So, you know, my, my shoes are very different, more of a chamber music focus. And so in a lot of contemporary music and Baroque music. And so I've been doing a lot of that here and it's just something different for the students and it's different for, you know, it's different for the community here. And so I'm, I'm finding, you know, ways to kind of, you know, insert little things that I do um, and it start, it's working out pretty well. Um, hopefully when the world opens up again, I can continue to do more of those projects. Yeah. Well, do you get to work with Valerie Coleman very much there? Um, she's also in charge of chamber music and you were just talking about, you know, your involvement in that. So what is that relationship like? Yeah, so Valerie Coleman, um, she is the head of chamber music and entrepreneurship at the Frost School. And so she organizes all of the chamber ensembles. And so all of my students who play in chamber groups, um, she organizes all of them into ensembles of their own. And she coaches like most of the groups, I think she, coach, she coaches them. And so, and she participates in our weekly, we have woodwind forum classes and she comes to our woodwind forum. In fact, we're having one later today oh. and yeah and so we um so we definitely are doing lots of collaborating with the chamber music aspect and you know she's actually really created this whole program i think it hadn't really had a lot of um structure to it before she got here and now it's like you know we're exploding with chamber music which is fantastic because it's what i love to do yeah are you still performing with your chamber group from new york city well okay no but i mean <laughs> Normally, yes. <laughs> Not right now. Right. <laughs> so uh, we do have actually we do have a concert in May. Fingers crossed. So we do have a concert in May. Um, so hopefully we'll go back on tour in May. But yes, we're still playing with the group. Yeah. Uh, Zephyrus Winds. And, you know, it's a group that I've been, you know, I joined the group right after right when I moved to New York. I've been in the group over 20 years. It's a pre, it's a pre, it's an established group. Um, I joined. I had to audition for the group when, um, when it was when I was living in New York, and, um, and now I'm actually the longest 
serving member of the group. So I've been in the group the longest now, um, but I had to audition. I had two rounds of auditions to get wow. into that group. It was pretty grueling at the time. And, um, and, but yeah, it's, it's a group that's evolved. I mean, it's not a group that's a full-time group at all. And, you know, each member has very unique sort of positions in their, in their communities. We're not all living in New York. We used to all live in New York. And then, you know, we all kind of started, you know, splintering off into different places. Um, but we what brings us back together is that the five of us just work really well together. And like the music making is at its best when like you have people who, you know, who motivate you, who challenge you, who push you, who inspire you. And like when you find that group, like you don't want to let it go yeah. no matter what. So when I was living in Las Vegas, like I, I wanted this group to happen and I would take red-eye flights back to New York just to rehearse with these people because it meant so much for me and my creativity. So um, yeah, we're keeping, we're keeping going, you know, and hopefully we'll resume as things continue. Um, fingers crossed that, you yeah. know, things will start opening up soon. Yeah. And what was it like when you did audition and you got that spot joining a group that was already established and kind of, you know, trying to fit in like a puzzle piece? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, you know, it was a group we had, we had a manager and we had, I don't know, I can't remember, like between 20 and 30 concerts a year. And, you know, so it was pretty busy for a woodwind quintet at the time. And, you know, basically we had, I think it was a long time ago now, so I can't remember, but I remember they gave me a list of repertoire I had to learn. And then I came and then they asked me back for a second round and then I think we played i remember playing barbara's summer music for the first round Bear, maybe hindemith and then i remember for the second round we played nielsen and then we sight read music and i did not know about the sight reading and that was, like, <laughs> freaked me out so i'm not yeah. a great sight reader and so i was like very nervous i thought it would be over but <laughs> but it ended up they accepted me and so yeah it was that group was very when i started the group it was very intimidating Everyone there, I think, went to Curtis, and then there's like little old me, and so <laughs> I I was like very 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 intimidated. And you know, over time, you know, I was able to kind of assert myself, but I was just so inspired to be with these people and to like learn from them and offer my unique perspective, I suppose, as well. But for me, it was like really a learning experience, and then that definitely has evolved. And you know, once you become more comfortable, you're able to like you know, give more of yourself. And it took a while for me, but eventually it happened. And I mean, I hope you guys get to play again very soon um, after the pandemic, you know, whenever that may be the light at the end of the tunnel, um, more performances will be happening. Do you think there's any lessons that musicians, programmers can learn from this last year, uh, how to move things forward for live music? You know, it's, I think it's, it'll be, interesting to see how things develop. I, I wonder, I think the online presence, the on like how things have started really exploding online at like first, it seemed like it was like out of desperation. And now it's like, you know, people, that's how people are really getting their content. Um, I think that will always be a part of the future. And so that's gonna be really interesting to see how that plays out. I don't really want to make any predictions, but I feel like online online activities will 
will still be around um, and be very, very formidable in the future. I also feel that, you know, touring ensembles may be, it may be more difficult for touring ensembles and focusing on establishing either organizations or groups where you're located um, might be a really interesting thing that I don't know that might happen. I'm sort of sensing that that might happen, um, like more local concerts versus touring groups coming in. Yeah. So, you know, especially overseas right now, because people are still worried about travel. I mean, I think it may be a while for people to feel comfortable flying um, internationally too. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm very hopeful because we've had so long without live music that I'm very hopeful that things will open up soon and that things will go back to the way they were, but I really would like for them to, um, to, to, I just don't know if we're going to come back to the way it was, but in terms of programming, you know, sort of in addition to the pandemic, but I think sort of what I think is really significant for the arts is, you know, the reactions to the social unrest of last year and how that's starting to affect programming. Mm -hmm. And I think that definitely has gotten more legs this year than at any other point in time. You know, like I mentioned earlier, I've been talking about, you know, programming diverse music and, and performing composers of color. I've been doing that for several years, you know, sort of prominently and sort of trying to advocate for that. But only this year, people seem to be, you know, thinking about it more intently. Yeah. So I, I'm very hopeful that that will be a continuing process and that people will be more open to, you know, hiring more people and also just doing more research to find out more people, you yeah. know, find more people, you know, there's, as I said earlier, there's amazing flutists everywhere, you know, like, it doesn't have to be like the, the flute community doesn't have to be this isolated elitist group of people. There's a lot of strong, really, really incredible musicians everywhere. They may not all have gotten the same amount of attention as some of the sort of, you know, people in that elite circle. And so we got to just bust that elite circle open. And I think the more that we do that and, you know, but we have to do the research. We can't just like, you know, you know, just, we also just can't hire the same two or three people either. We have to find, you know, we have to, we have to find the people. We have to find people to play. And, you know, I did a little bit of that with the NFA summer series of, you know, trying to, you know, not have the same faces. The same faces are wonderful. The same faces are great, but it's also good to bring in new people into, into the community. And so I'm hoping that more people do that. And it looks like people are doing that. So. How is the NFA planning coming for, is it for this year? <laughs> How are things going? Um, you know, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> I probably have many emails in my inbox <laughs> right now and uh, it's coming. It's, you know, um, so I was the conference, I was the convention program chair for Dallas in 2020 and then it, we postponed to 2021 thinking, oh, we'll be well behind us by now and we'll have a live convention in 2021. And sadly, that's still not the case. And so we are virtual convention for this August. Um, the, uh, the convention will be a four day event during August, August 12th to 15th. And so 
my programming is essentially the same, you know, but with some modifications. So, you know, I'm still working out some of those details. And of course the, the larger detail of the online platform and all of yeah. these things are, are being worked out, but. Well, I hope to your, your point about, you know, including more people that I mean, maybe the perk of it being virtual is that we can have more people from farther distances that might not have come to perform at NFA in the past. Exactly, exactly. And so those things are are definitely definitely happening and possible. And so, you know, we'll like once everything gets announced, you know, um, yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, we'll have a further reach yeah. that, you know, normally we wouldn't be able to have. So. Well, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for being here today and chatting with me. It was really fantastic. Great. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a really fun conversation. And thank you to the Flute Center of New York. You're very welcome. All right. Bye, Jennifer. Thanks. Bye.